you would take your Bibles this morning, I draw our attention to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, in a few moments I will read for us verses 14 and 15. If you're using the Pew Bible there in front of you, if you have, didn't bring your copy of the Scriptures, or if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, we invite you to use that copy there in front of you. It's uh, page 3 in your Pew Bible. I wanted to begin this morning by asking us a question. And I hope we are able to think about this question as a family. What do you expect God to do here? What do you expect God to do in this church? What do you expect God to do this hour that we spend together on Sunday mornings. Although we might not say it in our heart of hearts, I wonder how many of us would answer, I don't expect much. Whether we express it or not, often we can come Sunday morning with little expectations of God. It's just a normal, average Sunday where we get together, sing a few songs, pray, give some money, and then are preached at until we sing the final hymn and go on our way to find lunch. If we come to church with little expectations, it should be no surprise when nothing happens on Sunday. You didn't expect anything to happen. Nothing did happen. And so you go on your way till next Sunday when you do it all over again. I wonder if we're ever discouraged with the church in America. Why is that? Is it ever because we see so little happening? We wish more was happening. We wish great things were happening. I believe the change begins with us. It should be no surprise to us if we expect nothing to happen on Sunday and nothing does. What if, what if great things did happen in our midst? What if, however, we came to church with great expectations? What if we came to church expecting God to do unimaginable, unthinkable, and amazing things? What if we prayed that way for Sunday morning? What if we prayed that God would do great things each and every Sunday morning that we gather together? I don't don't believe we would be disappointed. But it starts with you. It starts with me. It starts with change in our lives. It it starts with expectations that God is going to do something today in my life. 
that each Sunday you will be different when you walk out of the do- those doors because you have met with God, because you have heard from Him through His Word, because you have been receptive to His work in your life, because you have beheld the miraculous glory of our great God and Savior, and that has captivated you to the point where you leave saying, how great is our God. My fellow Christian, let us throw off little expectations of what God might do and begin believing that a great God can do great things in our midst, that our great God will do great things each and every Sunday. Let us gather in great expectation, not only this Sunday, but every Sunday, with bated breath, looking for what God will do in us and among us. We will never be disappointed. I've begun my time here with two great weights upon my shoulders, two truths that I wrestle with every day, two things which I do not know. First, I do not know what you know. That is, I do not know everything that you have been taught. No doubt we are all at different levels in our understanding, in our walks with God. But I don't want to go over that which you would say, we know this, let's move on to something else. The other thing that I do not know is that I do not know what you don't know. I do not know what areas of teaching or understanding might be lacking in your life or those blind spots which you cannot see. I don't know what you know and I don't know what you don't know. So as we begin a new series, I thought it would be good for us to be clear about the gospel. We tend to throw that word around a lot, but just what is the gospel and why do we say things like gospel-centered? The gospel is the central message which we base our lives upon. It's the central truth upon which our eternal destiny hangs. You might be tempted to say this morning, why are you beginning with something so basic? Why do you want to talk about the gospel? The gospel is good for getting people into the Christian faith, but we've moved on from the gospel. We've moved past the gospel. Isn't the gospel just for evangelism? And so we could be tempted to say, let us move on to something of greater significance, to more important things, to more relevant things, to more deeper things. If we're tempted to say that, I dare say that, We don't understand the gospel. Brother and sister, it's time for us to realize the gospel is not just for bringing people into the faith. No, the gospel is also for Christians. It's necessary, an integral part of our life. It is instrumental in our continuing the Christian faith. We depend just as much on the gospel now as when we first believe. So we are never able to move past the gospel. We cannot and will not get over it because it is the truth that changes everything. It's changed everything in our lives. And it's the truth that God continues to use to change our lives every day. We can never study something better, something bigger, something more important than the gospel. 
So, if the gospel changes everything, then we must be absolutely clear on what the gospel is. It's here that we have to ask God to help us to understand the gospel clear, clearly, with clarity. We do not want any haze, any fog, any confusion about the gospel. Any misunderstanding of the gospel can have catastrophic ramifications because we not only are talking about catastrophe in this life, we're talking about catastrophe in the life to come. If we get the gospel wrong, its damaging effects will echo on into eternity because a gospel with error is no gospel at all. It's urgent that we get this right because it is the extension of everything else that we do. We must be absolutely clear on the gospel. Like someone who needs glasses, there are those who are not able even to step out of bed before they put their glasses on in the morning. So we need to see the gospel clearly. We need to understand what it is. I'm reminded of a curious event that happens in the book of Mark with Jesus. The people bring to Jesus a man who is blind. And they ask Jesus to heal this man who is blind. And Jesus takes that man. They go out of the town. They were in Bethsaida. They go out of the town. And Jesus there spits on his eyes, touches his eyes, and says, what do you see? And the man who was blind says, I see what looks like men walking, but they look like trees. And Jesus again touches his eyes, and then it said, and then he saw everything clearly. Does that strike you as weird? I mean, first, Jesus spat on the man's eyes. That's weird enough. But we're talking about Jesus here. Jesus could just say the word and whammo, you can see. Why did he have to go through all these steps? It's like he healed them a little bit and then a little bit more. Why didn't Jesus just say the word or just touch him once and he would be able to see? Jesus was putting on display a picture for us. A picture because the disciples had not yet seen clearly. They were like this man who was blind. They saw a little bit, but it was a little bit fuzzy. They needed to see clearly. You know how I know that? Because right after that, Jesus asked Peter and the disciples, who do people say that I am? Well, some people say you're Elijah. Some people say you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. Some people say you're one of the prophets. Then Jesus asked them more pointedly, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Bingo. But then what happens? Jesus begins to explain to them, I have to suffer. I have to 
go through the agony of the cross, and then I have to die. And then you know what Peter does. Not you, Lord. Not you. Never you. That's not how you will end. There, you don't have to go through this. There can be a plan B. And then do you know what Jesus says to Peter? Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter hadn't seen clearly yet. That's why this is important, because we need to know who Jesus is, and we need to know what Jesus has done, because that changes everything. Changes who we are, changes why we live, changes why we do what we do, changes why we say the things that we say to those around us. The gospel changes everything, even at the very beginning. Let's stand as we read these two verses together out of God's Word this morning. Out of reverence for God's Word, Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. After I finish verse 15, I will say, this is the Word of the Lord, and together we will say, thanks be to God. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, open our eyes this morning that we might see wondrous things from your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. You cannot escape it. Whenever you turn on the television... Whenever you open the newspaper, whenever you hear the radio, whenever you surf the web, you cannot escape it. Bad news is all around us. The more bad news we hear, the darker and darker it seems to be. It brings us down so that it seems like all we are able to see All we are able to think about is bad news. It is often so pervasive that sometimes we begin to think, is there any good news? As those who read the Bible, as those who understand what the bad news is, we understand that the bad news is what leads to the good news. If we close our eyes to the bad news, if we try to ignore the bad news, if we pretend like the bad news is not there, it will distort, damage, and hurt our understanding of the good news. We must know the extreme badness of the bad news if we are going to see the greatness of the good news. This is where Genesis 3 takes us. It takes us into the very heart of the bad news. It tells us of the event of the fall of mankind. 
This is true history. It's all of mankind's history. It's our dirty laundry put out on display. After God had created the universe, the world, and everything in it, after God has created man and then woman, created them in His image and in His likeness, after God had set them in the Garden of Eden, after God had set them up who were, as those who were to spread His rule and His reign, who were to be fruitful and multiply, after God had provided for them and cared for them, after God had made everything good, mankind fell. There it was in the Garden of Eden where the serpent deceived Eve by getting her to question God's goodness, God's authority, and His love for them. It was there that the very word of the serpent clashed with the very word that had come from God. And so the woman and the man decided to take matters into their own hands to believe that they knew better than God and that there was something that God must be holding back from them. And so they took the fruit and ate. They disobeyed God and it was in Adam, our representative head, where all our sin and all of our problems reside. It was then that the perfect order, known by the world, known by the people, this couple, was thrown into chaos, into disorder, into suffering and hardship. Their disobedience brought curses down from God upon the serpent, upon the couple, and upon the world. And it is here within the cursing of the serpent that we find one verse. It is here, even though we are engulfed in darkness and dismay, even though we see the utter, the utter ugliness of sin and the misery that it brings, God offers us a glimmer of hope, a promise in verse 15. This is what we call the proto-evangelium or proto-evangelium, which is a big fancy word, which means the first gospel or the first hint of the gospel. It's the gospel in seed form. It's not yet the full-fledged gospel, but this is the hope that everything that has gone wrong in the world will one day be made right. It's the hope that we cling to. It's the hope that the people who are reading the Bible, that they cling to. It highlights conflict. The very first word there, enmity. These two will be opposed to each other. They are enemies to each other. There is a struggle, a great struggle that is between good and evil. And from this verse, we see the cosmic struggle that is taking place all around us. The cosmic, cosmic struggle that we experience every day. You know this struggle. You are in this struggle. You felt it in your own hearts. You cannot ignore that it is there. There are two versions of reality which are being put forth. This is the glimmer of hope in this verse that holds us all the way to the end in Revelation. In fact, the whole rest of the Bible is nothing but an outworking of this verse. 
the message of God's Word flows through our understanding of this verse. You want to know what the Bible talks about? You have to start with this verse. You have to know what this verse says and everything else. All the other pieces of the puzzle that sometimes we try to juggle around, they fit when you start with this verse. If we skip this verse... We will not see clearly how the rest of the story unfolds. And so what do we see? We see this conflict, but there's two lines, two families, or as it says here, two sets of offspring, or seed is another term that we could use for it. Who is it? It's the offspring or the seed of the serpent, and the offspring or the seed of the woman. These are the two lines that are in conflict with each other. It is these two lines which participate in this struggle. It's these two lines which will exchange blows. The offspring of the woman, here you look at it, what's interesting, is noted to as he at the end of verse 15. He, referring to the offspring of the woman, he shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. You notice what's interesting there is how, as, this, as God is giving us this verse, he's talking about an, a future offspring from the seed of the woman. He, singular. Sometimes we can think about collectively, you know, offspring uh, as many or seed as many. But here, it's narrowed down to one particular offspring. One particular seed, he, he shall bruise your head. You notice what's different there? It's not necessarily the uh, the offspring of the woman is giving a blow to the offspring of the serpent, but it's that the offspring of the woman is giving the blow to the serpent himself. (laughs) Your, that's the serpent. Not some other offspring, but actually this blow given by the offspring of the woman is given to the serpent. And the serpent gives his blow back and you shall bruise his heel. We believe that this serpent that's here in the garden is None other than Satan, the devil himself. This is the one that Jesus talks about in John 8.44 when he says, "You you You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is the father of lies. So that's who we believe this serpent to be. We believe him to be no one other than Satan, the devil himself. And notice that these two bruises that are given, one by the offspring of the woman, one by the serpent, one of these blows that's given is a bruise to the serpent's head. The other blow is a blow to the offspring's head heal. 
Which is worse? A foot wound or a head wound? A head wound is worse than a foot wound. Why? Because you can die from a head wound. Your foot has a chance to recover, right, if it's wounded. Drop something on your foot, drop something on your head. And so it's here that we see that what God is describing to us is He is describing the demise of the serpent. This bruise, this blow, this crushing force that will land upon the serpent's head will prove fatal. But the bruise that comes to the offspring of the woman, while painful, while causing suffering, will not be the end of the offspring of the woman. And this is what we see played out in the Bible. We see this verse on display over and over and over and over again in the Bible. In fact, go to the very next story. What's next? After Genesis 3, what's next in the Bible? Cain and Abel. What do we see here? We see struggle. We see conflict between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. Abel and Cain offer sacrifices before the Lord. The Lord accepts Abel's offering. He does not accept Cain's offering. How does Cain respond? In fact, God warns him, Cain, sin is crouching at the door, and it would want to have dominion over you. And what does Cain do? He gives himself over to that sin. He becomes angry. He rises up in his anger and in his hatred, and he strikes down and kills his brother Abel. What did Jesus say about Satan? He has been a murderer from the beginning. What are we to do? This isn't the way the story was supposed to go. I mean, the offspring of the woman is supposed to win. Now, here's Abel, offspring of the woman. He's dead. Looks like Cain has won. But then what happens after that? Adam and Eve conceive again, and they bear a son named Seth. And Eve rejoices in her new offspring that God has raised up in the place of Abel. The offspring of the woman continues continues till we even get to Noah. What do we see in Noah? Noah, righteous man, man who follows the Lord. Everyone else doesn't. <laughs> offspring of the woman, offspring of the serpent. Noah builds a boat. He's rescued, he is saved. The seed of the serpent looks like it's been destroyed by a flood. But the seed of the serpent rises up again, even in Noah's own family. The struggle continues. Till we get to Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. 
Kings are going to come from you, Abraham. And it's through your offspring. Notice that word. It's in your offspring that the whole world is going to be blessed. How is that going to happen? Because he is the offspring of the woman. And now it's through his line, through his seed, that the whole world is going to be blessed. We see that struggle even in his own life. Fast forward, how about this one? Remember, we've talked about the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman exchanging blows. There are even hints in God's Word of these kind of blows being exchanged. You remember this one. It's a very familiar story, David and Goliath. What does David do? Five smooth stones to challenge the one who's come out to defy the armies of the Lord. David takes that smooth stone, puts it in his sling, swings it over his head, lets it fly. Flies straight and true, lands where? Head wound (laughs) on Goliath. It says that it sinks into his forehead. And then part of the story, which we oftentimes leave out of our children's Sunday school lessons... (laughs) What does David do after that? He charges Goliath and he cuts off his head. Seed of the serpent has a head wound. Seed of the woman has been victorious. And then what happens? All of the army of Israel follow David into battle and they are victorious. This is the story that we see played out over and over and over again. This struggle, this conflict, the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman. And oftentimes it seems like the seed of the serpent has won. I mean, God's people, they've been living in the land of Israel, and then all of a sudden they're taken out of their land. They're removed from their home. God, where are all your promises? Where's the promise of Genesis 3.15? That you're going to win. Where's the hope that we're holding on to? And God is sending all of these prophets to them saying, hold on, hold on. I will be with you. I will take care of you. You will be victorious. And then what happens? After the book of Malachi, 400 years of silence, of nothing. Until what happens? God's word breaks through like it never has before. A son is born. The light of the world has dawned and pierced the darkness. It was then that the final offspring of the woman came. It is he who our verse, Genesis 3.15, foreshadows. It's none other than our Savior, our Redeemer, our Restorer, Jesus Christ. Galatians 4, 4-5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions, adoption as sons. 
it is in this one that God is vanquishing and destroying the devil and will ultimately undo all of his dastardly deeds. For it is this one whose heel was bruised by Satan. It was this one who was the suffering Savior. It was his death on the cross. It was he who was lifted up, who was hung on a tree, becoming a curse for us. It was with the crown of thorns pressed into his brow. It was with the lashes that laid bare his back. It was the blows that were placed upon him by man. It was the nails that were pounded into his hands and into his feet. It was the side pierced where water and blood flowed. But even more, even more excruciating agonizing the wrath of God poured out upon him not for his own sins but for our sins but he was pierced for our transgressions he was bruised for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace we are like sheep who have gone astray we have led everyone to his own way And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was forsaken by his father, the offspring of the woman, the one who was to restore all things, the one who was to bring us back the kingdom of God into this world. The one who was to make all things new, to undo every wrong, was dead and buried in a tomb. It looked like the offspring of the serpent has triumphed. It looks like Satan has won. The whole world is covered in darkness. But that was not the end of God's plan. For on the third day, the dead Messiah rose again from the dead. Up from the grave he arose It is with the assurance of his resurrection that he has overcome the death and the grave. It comes with the certainty that Satan will be vanquished. He no longer has any power. It is that death-crushing blow landed upon his head that will lead to his end. And it is the hope of the resurrection that leads to our hope of Jesus Christ restoring and making all things new. Our Jesus saving us and bringing us back into sweet communion and sweet fellowship with God the Father. It is through this that God's reign over the earth will be reestablished. The world will be reclaimed. This outcome was never uncertain, but rather it was guaranteed to us from the very beginning. The Redeemer has crushed the enemy The one in whose clutches we were once bound. Do you see the darkness that we were once in? We were those who lied in the power of the evil one. We were those who were in the domain of darkness. This is where we all were before Christ. But we have turned from darkness to light. 
from the power of Satan to the power of God. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That is the word of the gospel. Colossians 2, 13-15 And you who were once dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. This is God's plan. This is God's plan. This is God's mercy and grace given to us that we saw in Genesis 3.15, now coming to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. This is God removing the fear and the threat and the torment of death. Hebrews 2, 14-15 Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself, that's Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We know that this is not the end yet. Satan has not yet met his final end, but he will. And even now, Christ is restoring people to himself. Even now, Christ is releasing people from their bondage. This is the gospel that is going out, that is calling people to see the darkness and the sin and the bondage which they are living in. It is going out in the power of the Holy Spirit and convicting people of their need. It is God in Christ Jesus providing a way out. It is men and women being released from this bondage, bondage of sin and to Satan, and giving them freedom for the very first time. And it brings them out of darkness into marvelous light of Jesus Christ. It speaks to us this morning because either you are in the hands of the devil or you are in the hands of God. There is no middle ground. For those in God's hands, is this the message which grips our hearts? Is this the message that we want others to know? Is this the message that informs us of our understanding of the world around us and not just the world, but even our unbelieving neighbor? Would we pray and desire that no one would be in the clutches of evil, but that all would come to know the glorious grace of this gospel? For those in the hands of the devil now, it's a call to awake to recognize your condition, recognize your need, recognize the darkness that has engulfed you, and run to Jesus. Run to Him who is the light. Ask Him to deliver you. Cast yourself upon Him. Talk to Him. Tell Him you believe in Him. Tell Him you believe this message. Ask for Him to rescue you. And He will. He will bring you out of your desperate state and give you the light of life.
Let's pray. O Lord, impress this message of the gospel into our hearts, into our souls. Help us to be captivated by its magnificence, by its glory, by its splendor. Help us to hold on to it, never to let go. We need the gospel when we first believe. We need the gospel even now. And so, Lord, we pray that you would use, you would use the gospel to transform our hearts and our lives today. Help us see your glorious plan from the very beginning. And to know that we have a certainty in you, in your word, and in what Jesus Christ has done for us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.